welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. Warren, I have to complain. So when you start learning about history when you're a kid, I always like the Roman history books because they tell the story of the Roman Empire from the beginning to the end, and they have little cutouts on different aspects of Roman culture and, and the economy and society. The problem with the Middle Ages is you don't have that. You have books on the Middle Ages or books on knights or books on castles. There's no books on this is medieval Germany, this is medieval France, this is medieval Italy. And, you know, you could say, well, uh, you know, those weren't, Italy wasn't united, Germany wasn't united, so that's a stupid thing. Uh, nations didn't exist until, I don't know, 18, 1860 or something. But there is a cultural hole there in Germany and Italy. The same way that you'd read about ancient Greece, there was never a political ancient Greece. Can you imagine how great it would be to have a book on medieval Germany or on some part even medieval Germany from Otto the first to Frederick the second, 300 years and just cover the culture too and in cutouts, but also cover the main line of the story. Because I think history, when you read about history, what you want is a storyline. You want a rise and a fall. And it ought to be about proper subject of history is a people or maybe an institution like the Roman Empire or uh, the French army or something. But there has to be either a people or an in, or a artificial institution within that people, or maybe a group of men or a biography is just like a mini version of history because it's one man's life. And that's really the, the best way to learn about it. I, I have a hard time learning about history if all you've got is technical studies, or things about a period where there's no people. And so I, I bring this up because our topic today is the Teutonic Knights. And this is something that I got a little bit interested in when I was in middle school. I, I played you know, Age of Empires and had the Teutonic Knights. And I was like, oh, this is, this is interesting. This, uh, these Teutons and they've got the Knights and the castles. This is interesting. I want to know more about this. So I got a book on it called The Northern Crusades by Eric Christensen. And this was Wait, back... you got that when you were in middle school? I got this when I was in eighth grade. Yeah, I oh, ordered geez. this off the internet. And this is back, this is one of the first books I probably ever got on the internet because back then you just went to the bookstore and I tried to read some of it, but it's, it's really hard going even, and, and even now I, I was reading it the other day and it's hard going just even now that I know a lot of the place names and a lot of the, the people, the people names, there's just no, no real story. It isn't discussed in the same way that uh, one of my favorite historians, John Julius Norwich, does the history of Byzantium, where he, he gives you a, a big three-volume treatment of a thousand years of history. He gives you the emperors, and then from there, he like works his way out into some of the aspects of the society. And that's like how you absorb the information most, most easily, I think. So I've always found with the Teutonic Knights, in English, there's just, there's very little to go off of. And... And then I started researching for this episode. I was looking at some of the material in German. There's also just not really much in German unless you go back to the 1880s. And there's whole big volumes that you'd find online by great historians that discuss the whole thing. So the Teutonic Knights were a political entity I won't even, for 300 years, basically. I mean, they, they had... Well, they still technically, they technically, still exist. Technically, they still exist, but the Odenstadt in Prussia lasted from about the 12, 1220s to uh, technically to 1525 when they secularized, but 
there was about 200 years where they were a real independent country, and then another 100 years where they were vassals of the Polish, Polish-Lithuanian king or Grand Duke. But what's interesting about the 100 years, or what's, what's strange about the Teutonic Knights is they're not really an, or, an organic country. They're a sort of colony of the Holy Roman Empire or of the Vatican, or of the, I should say of the Pope, in this frontier land, ruling over semi-civilized barbarians who they've forcibly Christianized, and then trying to fight other non-Christian peoples, or uh, non-Catholic, we should say. I mean, in the case of the Russians, Orthodox, in the case of the Poles, they, they became Catholic in the course of this. But the Teutonic Knights' main enemy were the Lithuanians uh, for a long time. But anyway, how do you get into, how did you get into the Teutonic Knights? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I, I that's the Northern Crusade. Buying that book in eighth grade is pretty... Uh, it was yeah, like all there was, though. I'm surprised I mean, you I... ever were interested in the Teutonic Knights <laughs> ever again after that, because that's some dense, uh, yeah, some dense history. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that uh, I've always... Since I was a little kid, I've loved castles and knights and, and the medieval stuff. Knights in shining armor was always something. And part of it's just being an 80s kid and growing up with a lot of, uh, you know, fantasy, fantasy films and stuff. I always liked that. And when I was in, uh, I, I don't know what year it was that I first, or how old I was when I first heard about the Teutonic Order. But I, uh, when I was about 11 or 12, I discovered Warhammer fantasy and uh, I was really into that and I had always from like the the classic D&D archetype of the paladin was the type that I always identified with I always loved the idea uh, du- of Dungeon and Dragons for our non- yes yeah I, 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 I never really played Dungeons and Dragons but in in uh, video games and in fantasy I always liked the paladins or the the holy warriors and I thought that that was a really cool idea that you don't just have a knight or a priest you know, because priests are uh, priests, I liked because they were or, or clerics were always cool because they're like single-mindedly, uh, you know, devoted to their faith and they're and they're very strong in their beliefs and they're pure of heart and they're good. And then knights I admired because they were just badass, you know, with armor and swords and riding horses and, and they're just the coolest, the cock of the walk of, of medieval life. And then uh, the paladin was, or the, the like a holy warrior was a cool amalgam of these two types where you have the purity and faith of a priest combined with the martial prowess and cool armor and everything else of a knight. And at some point I, I heard about the Templars and I started to find out about that history. And it's funny because this history is not really that even the Templars is not really that accessible. If you're a little kid and you want to re- read about medieval life, at least this was true in the 80s, probably 80, 90% of the books that you get are talking about medieval England. Mm-hmm. You know, the the show Castle, the old the old PBS film Castle that was based on the book. You know what I'm talking about? With Vaguely, the, I think I... It was this great guy who did these... Uh, they used to show them in the schools. I'm sure our listeners know what I'm talking about. They did one cathedral, castle, pyramid, um, the... There's, they still hold up. I, I can find out the name real quick of the author, but um, he they they were a series of books where they talk about the building of these great um, of these great uh, works of architecture. Yeah, David Macaulay, that's his name, David Macaulay, 
and uh, one of the things he did was Roman City. I've never seen that one. Oh, I've but, seen that. That's okay. I've seen that one. Yeah, he but. he. Uh, so what he would do is when these when PBS made these these educational documentaries, it would show David McCauley talking and exploring the ruins, and then they would cut to animated sequences of like uh, them building a castle or something like that. And I remember they set it in England. And all, uh, Greg, it wasn't until I was pretty old that I realized that, wow, there was actually, Germany actually had a medieval period too. And France, and I mean, I was like, probably, I was like seven or eight when I, when I, when I realized that not everything medieval is, I mean, English and, and based around that or France, you know, cause France, you talk a lot about medieval France in, I mean, you see medieval France in, in history books. I, maybe I was, I was probably younger than that, but it's still, I remember there was this moment. I don't remember how old I was, but I remember there was this moment where I was like, well, wait a minute, they had castles and cathedrals and knights in Germany too. Why do I never hear about that? You know, and I, I too, when I was 11, went to Germany and I saw some of these German castles on the Rhine and the Main. Oh, God, and that's I, what a I, great I, experience. Yeah, and it was great. And I was like, man, I, this is fascinating. I want to know more about this. Yeah. There's nothing. There's like, nothing. There's you, nothing. There's and nothing for kids. There's, <laughs> there's nothing, yeah. So, there's nothing for kids and there's nothing that tells like, well, who who occupied these castles? Why were they built? What, right. What, what's, what was the political situation like? What? Right, yeah. It's I like mean, I, knew, I, I was standing on, I remember as a kid standing there on the Rhine next to this big, uh, the Mouse Turm castle and I thought, well, the Roman, that's the Roman province over there. Here's the, the, you know, barbarian savages over here. But what about this, this stuff I'm looking at? This is a thousand yes. years later and I can't, no context. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's true of uh, medieval Poland, medieval Hungary, medieval Italy. I mean, medieval Italy, there's a little, some written about, but it's not written about for kids. Uh, France and, and England, the British Isles, and obviously we speak English and we're in the Anglosphere. So it makes sense to some extent, but but it's, even forget about just for kids, also just for the layman. Yeah, there, there isn't. Yeah, there's there's, nothing. there's hardly anything on a lot yeah. of these so, things. So I found out about the Templars first, and of course I was just, <laughs> I mean, I was captivated by the story of the Templars, and uh, and I'll, I'll I'll get into what the the religious monastic orders were and what the theory was behind them, but. They were like the closest thing to holy knights, paladin types in the in the real world. I mean, it was it just blew my mind that there was actually guys that did this uh, and reading about the first crusade. And then somewhere along the line, I read about the Teutonic Knights. And I think it was um, I think it was Warhammer Fantasy Battle that got me interested in it because there was a the miniatures, you know, you could do uh, knights for the empire in Warhammer the empire was based on the Holy Roman Empire which was always a cool thing about Warhammer fantasy even though it was made by Brits this is some hardcore nerd shit i don't i don't know any of this i'm sure a lot of the people uh listening to this know um Warhammer fantasy was made by Brits who then based their whole like if Americans create like a pseudo medieval kingdom i have to just expand on this for one second if Americans make a pseudo-medieval kingdom that's like a fantasy kingdom, Americans always base it on medieval England. Mm -hmm. But what was cool about the Warhammer creators, who were a bunch of like, you know, Gen X nerds uh, or even baby boomer nerds who loved wargaming and, and loved fantasy, and so they came up with this fantasy world, was that the protagonist nation of their fantasy world that they created was completely, it was medieval Germany. 
And so this was an entry point for me to think about and learn about medieval Germany because they, they would wear the clothing of the Landsknecht, you know, with the all the, the weird... Uh, the puffy arms, puffy and the arms with the slits in colors. them, and all this. Yeah, yeah. And the 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 two handed swords with the the flamberge, you know, the the the, the uh, wavy blade and all that. And uh, but also they had the the Maximilian style armor. So I started to learn about that. And then they they would have in Warhammer they would have holy holy orders of knights that you could you could learn about. And uh, somewhere along the line, in in going back and forth from fantasy and learning about history. I discovered that there were German, a German version of the Templars. <laughs> like, and I also, I, you know, I was interested in Germany more because of my dad, because of the SS and the Nazis and Hitler. So I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> you know, I'm like, there's a medieval, like a medieval SS. <laughs> there's like, yes, it's a medieval SS was the way I looked at it. And it was just, it combined like two things that I thought were just the coolest thing ever. So, so Templars were just the coolest thing of the medieval period and the Nazis and the Germans and the SS were the coolest thing of the 20th century and here you have this order that was both it would combine the two uh so i immediately went out and bought when i started learning about them i bought uh the osprey uh yeah military history military yeah. history books and the first one i got i have it right here was crusader crusader castles of the teutonic knights i actually got the second of two volumes and it was about their stone castles in livonia and then I got the first volume, and I also got a book, which I don't have with me, unfortunately, but about the Battle of Tannenberg. And I read the whole history of the Battle of Tannenberg. And ever since then, I have been a total Teutonic Knight Spurg. I, I love this history. I think it's the coolest like thing in all of medieval history. And, uh, and we can talk about why. I mean, the, the, one of the reasons is, for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, the... Uh, the idea of I, I, I'll step back and talk about how these orders formed and then what makes the Teutonic Knights different from the Templars or the other big one, which was the Hospitallers. The idea of holy orders of knights came out of the Crusades and the idea of the Crusades came out of the idea of holy war, which is different from just war. And I'm sure... Catholics will like this, but I think this is something that is, uh, it goes beyond, first of all, we were all Catholic back then. <laughs> there was no, there were no <laughs> Protestants back then. So everybody was a Catholic at well, that except, time. Except the uh, Orthodox. Except, except for the Lithuanians. The idea <clears throat> of holy war, and I just want to talk about this for one second, because it's something that the modern church has completely swept under the rug. And you could say that it's unchristian or that it's it doesn't follow from true Christianity. Uh, and you could say that it's a kind of paganism that's that lived on in Christianity. That's kind of my view of it. The mm -hmm. idea of holy war seems to me like dying for you know, Valhalla, to go to Valhalla where the brave may live forever. You know, it's that kind of a pagan Germanic warrior religion idea superimposed over Christianity and Catholicism. That's kind of how I see it. 
leave it to the Germanic peoples to figure out a way to take Christianity, which is like the most peaceful turn the other cheek religion and turn it into, you know, we will have our barbaric warriors that will go die in battle and go to, you know, the, 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 the mythical place where brave heroes go uh, in paradise. But the idea of and, and I'm pulling this straight from Wikipedia. There's a really good Wikipedia entry on Christianity and violence that expands on this. What it comes down to is basically this, that the very early Christian view of war was that it was just completely bad. Uh, it was immoral and you shouldn't do it. And then later came the just war theory which was, it says here, is a doctrine of military ethics of Roman philosophical and Catholic origin, studied by moral theologians, ethicists, and international policymakers, holding that a conflict can and ought to meet the criteria of philosophical, religious, or political justice. And this, I mean, the concept goes back to even Greek thinkers like Plato, but uh, in Christian medieval theory, it started with Augustine of Hippo and Thomas Aquinas, and basically they came up with this idea that war was some. It was sometimes a necessary evil. Like war is something that's it's still bad, but sometimes you have to do it. Okay, and this was different from the earlier Christian thinkers, which were just you don't do war. Period. All right, but then. And this this idea of a just war continues today in the West, and they, we still try to classify like World War II as a just war. But then holy war, the concept of holy war came about, and this is taking it a step further. Uh, and it started with Urban II, the Pope, uh, and this was he he declared at the Council of Clermont in 1095 that some wars could be deemed not only as a bellum how would you say that i u s t u m justum yeah bellum justum just war I guess, yeah i guess the catholics would say bellum justum justum but could in certain cases ride to the level of a bellum sacrum holy mm. war okay so this is this sounds like we've you know we have a white sharia and this is our our white jihad yes it is it is uh and then now now Jill Castner, Dean of the New York University College of Arts and Science, characterizes this as a, quote, remarkable transformation in the ideology of war, shifting the justification of war from being not only just, but spiritually beneficial. And it says that uh, another uh, uh, scholar examined the Christian concept of holy war, asking how a culture formally dedicated to fulfilling the injunction to love thy neighbor as thyself could move to a point where it sanctioned the use of violence against the alien, both outside and inside society. The religious sanctioning of the concept of holy war was a turning point in Christian attitudes towards violence. Pope Gregory the what is that seventh made the holy war possible by drastically altering the attitude of the church towards war. Hitherto, a knight could obtain remission of sins only by giving up arms, okay? So, you know, you, you give it up, and that's how you get the remission. But Urban invited him to gain forgiveness in and through the exercise of his martial skills. A holy war was defined by the Roman Catholic Church as a war that is not only just, but justifying. That is a war that confers positive spiritual merit on those who fight in it. And... Uh, in the 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, quote, 
the knight of Christ may strike with confidence and yet die more confidently, for he serves Christ when he strikes and saves himself when he falls. When he inflicts death, it is to Christ's profit. When he suffers death, it is to his own gain. So, again, Germanic peoples, we know what they were like in pagan times, and we know how they thought about heroically dying in battle. They had a whole thing about this, and and you know the uh, no, Tacitus Tacitus yeah. wrote about how like the Germanic leader, like the leader would fall, and his bodyguards would like fight to protect his body till they were all killed. You know, this is a very ancient. It's in the blood. It's in the race of Germanic peoples. So I, this is just me. I personally interpret the doctrine of holy war as it developed in medieval Christianity as a reconciling of an ancient Germanic, I don't want to even call it a pagan, but a, a racial impulse of the Germans to identify spirituality with fighting and heroically dying in battle. And this is in a time of universal Catholic power. This is a time where these ideas are sort of reconciled. It, well, so it seems like the Catholic Church, though, used this bellum sacrum specifically for wars with groups on the fringe of Christendom. Yes. Yeah. And and you could say... Whereas they would never say, they would never... You couldn't, if you were the king of France, petition the Pope to get your, uh, you know, your invasion of England or vice versa, no. declared a, a holy war. No. And of course this, I mean, the, the ideas of all the, all, all these ideas were abused. And of course this is how... Um, you know, by the time of uh, we were talking about uh, in the FTN we did, we were talking about H.G. Um, Wells's history, and it's funny because in like the twenties and thirties, um, there was a, a kind of cynical attitude that the Crusades were mostly just about loot. You know, that it was just a justification to to uh, uh, steal right, a bunch that, of shit, which is a reasonable thing to think because World War One was that so why well, should why shouldn't previous wars have been that yeah it, well it's something that uh i there's a couple of books i've read about the first crusade and there's one called it's a very old book again any books written like before world war ii as tucker said before world war ii or before world war one um you can find really interesting books on these all these subjects um there's a book i have i don't have it with me here but there's a book called um Iron Men and, and Saints, Iron Men and Saints that I read that's about the, the Crusaders. And then there's another uh, book that I have there on the shelf, uh, The Crusades. It's about the first crusade by Zoe Oldenburg that I read early on. It really explains how it's it's hard to get in the mind of a medieval, a medieval man. But like with the, say, for instance, the conquistadors, you know, people want to say, and this is very like a modern kind of um, post-enlightenment idea that, okay, the conquistadors said they were holy warriors or they're fighting to spread Christianity or they're trying to convert the heathen, but we know that they just looted the Incans and the Aztecs and took all their gold and melted it down and got fabulously rich from it. So clearly they were using these ideas just as a cynical ploy. They didn't actually believe it. They just cynically used it to right, justify which is their loot. such a psychological misinterpretation because nobody... Nobody would ever sign up to go invade the jungles of Central America and risk getting killed with you know, a flint or an obsidian club and, or have your heart cut out on top of a temple for some gold. Yeah. It, what I mean, maybe what, they what, would, well, but well, like well, you wouldn't not they wouldn't be nearly as effective unless they really believed in something. Well, well, the thing is, 
that's a that's a failure to understand the mind of people, the mindset of people long ago. In my readings of the Conquistadors, which is another period that I'm extremely interested in, uh, you have to remember that the Conquistadors were people who had just come out of um, the reconquest of Spain from the Muslims. So the the two were linked. Like you couldn't, it was, it was both. It was both at the same time. You're fighting like a holy war and you're going to get a bunch of gold because of it. And again, if you go back to like Beowulf and the old like pagan yeah. stuff, it's very, the two are intertwined. The idea of a, a treasure hoard, like the, the king has the treasure hoard and he dies and goes to Valhalla, you know, the two are kind of linked together. It's something that, uh, you know, I mean, we, this is too far off field, but it's an interesting idea. I think that you cannot understand the medieval mind unless you first accept that people thought just completely differently than they do today, uh, you know, back then. And and that was true of the Crusaders. I think the Crusaders, they were true believers, but they weren't like today's true believers. You know, when you get a religious fanatic today, they're all about doctrine, you know, usually, even if they're, even if they're Catholics, they're all about, you know, the catechism and they're all about saying all the right prayers and doing all the right things. And they're sort of pedantically or obsessively following a doctrine rather than living in a culture where this is just the dominant thing, you know? what i mean like yeah. it's the difference between it would be like if you were a nazi who is someone who is just you've read a lot of books on the third reich and you've you you speak german and you do scholarship on it versus if you were like a young german boy born in 1932 and now you're growing up in the hitler youth and now you're growing up in the you know and then you join the wehrmacht and you join the ss and you you're you're not like a doctrinaire pedant you are just a nazi because it's your entire culture it's yeah. everything you've known that's the way it would be to be a christian i think in that time but anyway this idea of holy war is a fascinating concept it's something that you see you see shades of it in earlier pagan ideas and then you see it also in something like the ss even though the ss specifically rejected a lot of the legacy and we'll talk about that later of the of the Teutonic Knights and the SS you know they were like a quarter catholic but they were less catholic than the Wehrmacht you know so there were catholic SS men like mm -hmm. Leon de Grel but but there was less catholicism in the SS than most of the German army so they were not like super pro catholic but this idea of fighting a holy war and of there being a spiritual benefit conferred on the fighter of it. Anyway, so this is the idea of the Crusades in general. Uh, it was kind of a historical inevit inevitability that uh, at some point the idea of a monk and a knight, which were like the two big ideas of medieval life, other than the peasants and the farmers, but monks a man of spirit of the next world and a knight, a man of arms to the different estates, at some point they would be combined. The, the monkish, uh, they call it the rule of St. Benedict. This was a book of precepts written in Latin in 516 by St. Benedict, who is the patron saint of Europe. That's why uh, Ratzlinger chose his name, uh -huh. Benedict. So he wrote this in, I guess technically that's the Dark Ages, but he wrote this idea for monks living communally under the authority of an abbot. And the idea is to pr 
pray and work, basically. It's it's the idea of cloistering yourself away and just living purely for God. Live, you know, a, a complete life of an aesthete. You're giving up worldly things and all your... Uh, ascetic. Ascetic, yes. Not aesthetic, but ascetic, yes. Um, and you're just, you're, you're living for God uh, and you're doing great works for God. It's interesting because the the monasteries and monks play an important part in the culture that survives from that period because these were some of the only people still that could read and write, that were writing down books, that were chronicling history, that were also uh, even science to some extent. Uh, you know, I think the early, what is it, the early, uh, some of the early genetic stuff where we were putting together the laws of hereditary of heredity were, were put together by a monk. Uh, and so these were, these were seats of not just like guys that all they do is work and pray and, and live for God, but they were also little outposts of learning and culture in medieval Europe. Uh, at some point, this idea came about in the Crusades of, and it was, it started with the Templars, that you could combine the two, that you could have a group of fighting monks, warrior monks, who would be doing all the things that monks do. So they're giving up. I know with the um, with the Teutonic Knights, the three rules were chastity, uh, poverty, and obedience. Meaning, couldn't have sex. Not only with women, not only with women, but also with men. These were not like. I mean, anybody today, you get a group of guys living <laughs> together that don't touch women, and people would be like, "Oh, they must have all been fags." No. Um, again, to illustrate that, I'm point, sure. I'm sure there's been a movie made about that. Well. Again, this is the way the enemy would like to portray everything, you know. Um, I mean, I, I even read that uh, – I've read different apocryphal stories about the Teutonic Knights. Like one guy – and again, you could make jokes about this. Like one guy found the most beautiful village girl in the village and slept with her for like – a month just to show that he was like not tempted you know like slept in the same bed and then another guy i read wore his like chain mail up against his you know genitals without any cloth in between to just mortify the flesh that guy must have been really wrestling with this idea of <laughs> and again you could say like no but they 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 were not they were not sexual they had given it up and uh you could say oh yeah sure right but when you read about some of their other excesses, like their beer drinking and, <laughs> and their lust for war and battle, it kind of becomes more plausible that, yes, they really had sworn off uh, all sex. Um, but the other, the other two uh, big precepts there were obedience and, uh, and poverty. Poverty meaning that they couldn't own anything. And this is really strange in medieval life uh, where you have knights who don't own personal property. So in other words, every every knight that would go into battle in the medieval world would be a member of a the upper class. And he would have his own, you know, coat of arms and he would have his own armor and there'd be some bling and some flair that's just his, you know, because we this is before the age of uniforms. There was no such thing as a uniform during this period of, of Europe, European uh, warfare, as we think of the term. And uh, knights would come into battle with their page and their squire and their their sword and their all their stuff that they have. So it's sort of like a um, 
it's like a rich guy going to war, basically, where he has his private tank and he has his private everything. You know, that's that's what these guys were, the knights in the medieval period. So it's very strange and it's very unusual to have knights, full knights, who are the whole, the, 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 the real deal, who have completely given up. So the order just collectively owns all the armor the, and the horses, yes. the weapons. And yes. And I'll, I'll get into, they were allowed like, actually I can just, I'll, I'll skip ahead. Um, what they were allowed to have is in this one Osprey book, it talks about um, how they could have uh, just basic things like two pairs of pants, like a little chest mm-hmm. by their bed. You know, they slept all in a communal sleeping area. They all ate together. They all prayed together. When they, when they would eat together, I mean, he's incredibly disciplined life. When they would eat together, like someone would be reading them like religious texts and they weren't allowed to talk. I mean, incredibly disciplined, strict lifestyle. Um, and, and this is one of the things, actually, I'll, this is this is an interesting point that uh, gives you a sense of how much more economical it was to field knights of this caliber rather than the traditional type of knights. This is from one of the Osprey books. It says, The economic base of the order was agriculture and trade, and of the proceeds of agricultural activity made their way into the castle in the form of taxes. The size and beauty of the castles helped the Teutonic order acquire a reputation for possessing fantastic wealth. But money was never as plentiful as was imagined, and the illusion of wealth owed less to great income and more to careful management of resources coupled with a relatively inexpensive army. It was much cheaper to house an army of fanatic religious volunteers sworn to poverty, chastity, and obedience and feed them meager fare than to depend upon aristocratic knightly vassals with wives, families, and a position to so maintain This is like society. Nazis versus Republicans. I mean, Kind of, yeah. I mean, you, can, you can put 50 guys on the street uh, if they're fanatics more easily than it would cost the Republicans hundreds of thousands of dollars to right. yeah. get 50 guys on the street. And it's kind of an interesting idea because... As as knights, they were every bit, every inch the the um, power and strength of any other medieval knights. So like like the best medieval knights, the Templars and the Hospitallers and the Teutonic Order were were up to that caliber. Like the the finest knight. I mean, and as we know, this is from the era when heavy cavalry dominated the battlefield. Like heavy cavalry was the important thing in war. It was the war winning might. So yeah. Ch- Poverty, chastity, and then obedience, meaning total blind, like you do what the order says. You do what the Hockmeister, the Grandmaster says, and the Grandmaster follows what the, you know, the Pope uh, and, the, and the Catholic Church. So it's just like this complete like leadership principle, straight up and down, zero like democracy, zero, uh, you know. But I mean, in, in the Benedictine rule, there was a degree, actually, I shouldn't say that. There was a degree of democracy in as much as the grandmaster was elected mm-hmm. by the by the brother knights. Um, so, yeah, this is the the basic idea of these of these holy warriors. And then the thing that makes them different from the Templars and the Hospitallers, and we can get into their history. They were founded after the Templars and the Hospitallers. The Templars right. were mostly French. Um, the Hospitallers were pretty international, but I think they were more focused. Um, Spain and uh, and Italy, a little more Mediterranean. Um, the Teutonic Knights were founded by German crusaders. Uh, I'm sure you got the year there in the, the early eleven ninety two. Eleven ninety two. So and it's, it's and they were called the. I mean, they're called in German uh, the Deutsche Orden. 
Deutsche Orden, like yeah. the, the German order, yeah. yeah. And, and the real name was and the... Teuton, Teutonic Knights is just a nice Latin way of saying German order. Yeah, and that's not that wasn't really their name either. Their actual name was the Order of St. Oh, yeah. Mary of, of Jerusalem um, was their original name. But they were basically founded by German crusaders who wanted to create their own... Um, German order of knights uh, and and the early function of it was to protect pilgrims and uh, people visiting the Holy Land who were who were German and spoke German and were of German origin and also to set up hospitals and that's what you know the original Templars were set up to do but this is all about a hundred years after the first after the start of the first Crusade you know so this is well into the kingdom of Jerusalem and yeah. the crusading state uh, but yeah, what sets them apart from the Templars, the Templars are mostly associated with fighting Muslims in the Middle East. And the Teutonic Knights are most associated with fighting the Northern Crusades up in the Baltic states right. in, in uh, present-day uh, Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Poland. And that's what sets them apart, other than the fact that they were German, was that their area of crusading that they are most known for is not the desert and the palm trees and the and the Muslims. It's it's in, you know because you think of the Crusaders, you think of Accra and Jerusalem, and you think of these these battles in the deserts of these like the sun beating down, yeah, you know, hot, and you're fighting. Scene. Yeah, yeah, and and this is a crusading order that most of their battles are fought in these gigantic pine forests and these frozen rivers and this harsh like winter climate and marshes, swamps and marshes. So it's like a crusade being fought in the middle of the most inhospitable dark, you know, the, the winter lasts forever. And it's just like, and the, one of the interesting things about them was that the land up there is so marshy that they're unlike most of the medieval world, most of the medieval world would fight in the, spring and summer or the summer and early fall and then shut down for the winter and just hole up for the winter the teutonic knights not so it was the other way around the marshing the marshes were so bad up there that they couldn't really move around and everything was so thick and i think they forested but they would use the rivers when the rivers would freeze in the winter they would use the rivers as basically roads to yeah. to move around and and so a lot of their fighting was done during the winter time and, and again there's a strange echo there of like the eastern front because mm-hmm. so many of the worst eastern front battles were fought in the winter time in the snow so there's something about germans like pushing east and fighting battles against slavs in like snow and ice it's a, it's a very it's it's not what we think of when we think of the Crusades. Yeah, sorry, 1198. That was when their charter was issued. Yeah, so that's fairly late into. Yeah, because the, uh, the first Crusade was you know started uh, announced in 1095, and they yeah, took so Jerusalem is, in 1099. Yeah, so this is a good uh, you know hundred years later. yeah later. That's a long time. Uh, so yeah, that's what makes the Teutonic Knights different from the Templars. And of course, I'll just say it right now for anybody who who. Um, you can always recognize the Teutonic Knights from the other orders because the Templars, the Holy Knights, they wore kind of they wore like a uniform. They weren't all decked out. Like I said, knights would wear their own bling, you know, based on yeah, their own it was, family. It was sort of uh, rapper like. Not very... when you see a medieval army, the knights would be very colorful. They'd all be you know different pennants and colors and and flags and shields and coats of arms. And when you would see the Templars. It was very easy to recognize them because they wore the white 
uh, what do you call it? The habit mm-hmm. with with the red cross in the middle, this red blood red cross. And then the Hospitallers, they would wear like a brown habit with a white cross. And the Teutonic Knights was always the white with the black cross. So the idea of the black cross. That's how you can always spot the Teutonic Knights. And I'll just say... And you look a lot scarier when there's 100 guys all wearing the same thing. Yes, and, and the idea of just... Again, it just fits with their like snowy, cold uh, Baltic crusade. This idea of guys with this like severe white with the black, with the armor. Um, but I wanted to say about the Black Cross, before I forget and, and before we move on, that the Black Cross is something that is so critical to German nationalism, German national identity. It's it's fused right into it. And uh, I'll give just two examples. One is the Knight's Cross, which was instituted during, uh, you know, the, the, the War of Liberation in 1813 against Napoleon by uh, Friedrich Wilhelm, the, the king, the Prussian the king. Iron Cross or Knight's Cross or both? The Iron Cross. The, uh-huh. the, the idea of the Iron Cross was created in 1813. And it became like a major, major, major symbol of German nationalism. But the idea of the Iron Cross that's so associated with the Germans in World War One and World War II, it's associated with, uh, you know, the Red Baron and all that. The idea of the Iron Cross, obviously the origin of it is the Black Cross of the Teutonic Knights. That's where the inspiration comes from. And also, I will say, the swastika. The swastika flag is something that if you look at it, and you take the symbol by itself, you say, well, this is a, this is clearly some fool society, like we was Indians thing, you know, this is Mm -hmm. some, uh, you know, we was Hindus, uh, because this is not at all like a Christian symbol. This is not a medieval or Roman symbol. This is clearly some kind of like Sanskrit, you know, Indian subcontinent thing. Um, but in German, as you well know, what do you call you don't call it the swastika it's what do you ha- call the it hockenkreuz hockenkreuz so the word cross is in is in the symbol of the swastika and if you look at hitler's flag if you just zoom in on the center of it what do you have you have a classic black cross on a white field yeah. it's just tilted to the side and hitler's personal standard you know and a lot of them were the straight up and down swastika flag so if you just remove the hooks on the hooked cross mm-hmm. You have the symbol of the Teutonic Knights. You have the black, the, the plain black cross on a white field. So that's, again, that's an idea of how much this order just echoes through history and reverberates in and influence the Nazis indirectly, you know, not always directly because the Nazis were not claiming to revive like a Catholic, you know, holy war order. Um, that's a medieval idea. But shades of this just influence ever and everything that we do as national socialists um there's a bit of the teutonic order in it so how did how did the teutonic order get from the holy land to the baltic basically uh when they and again some of the, the details of this we can go through and look at the timeline but it's an interesting story essentially um they were founded with i believe the help of the german emperor frederick ii right he was the one that uh he was he was the one he was emperor of he he grew up in palermo sicily he wait is frederick which one is it wasn't barbarossa frederick the second is frederick um the one who grew up in sicily and who was he was supposed to go to the holy land for years and the pope 
was always pushing him to do it and he finally got around he got excommunicated a couple times he finally went to the holy land and secured jerusalem by buying it from the saracens yes, yes. which is a really interesting story in and of itself that he jerusalem... also he also spoke arabic yeah well that's again this is <laughs> he was a very swipple kind of guy frederick ii <laughs> is a fascinating figure because it's just it's so typical of like german muslim like mutual respect and cooperation <laughs> you know i mean it's just again there's a there's a shades of world war ii amin al-husseini and the germans c- collaborating and the iraqis collaborating uh, against the working together as allies to fight off the zionists and the british and then in world war one the Germans and the Ottomans working together, uh, you know, and, and the German officers going to lead the Ottoman army, essentially, and train them in how to do their shit. So when you go back to the Crusades, uh, the one time a German crusader took Jerusalem, uh, a German emperor. Well, the, the, was, the only one of the only time. Well, there's, was, Jerusalem's only been taken twice. Well, three times by Christians. And this was like, so one of the three. And I'm, I'm counting 1918 or Oh, okay. All right. So, so, so in the Crusa- in the time of the Crusades, twice yeah. Jerusalem was taken. Once in the first crusade by bloody force. <laughs> and then the second time by Frederick II, the German emperor, who basically just negotiates it and, and is like, okay, we'll give you this much money and we walk into Jerusalem. Um, but he was a Holy Roman emperor. And uh, I think he contributed a lot to... Get it, helping to get the Teutonic Order off the ground, um, but essentially, like the short version of of your question is that when it became untenable to hold on to the Crusader states, which, by the way, the Crusader states for anyone doesn't know who who doesn't know, um, there was a European state in the Middle East for about two hundred well, years. Four, hmm, uh, four states. King, well, yeah, King, technically, I mean, technically, yeah, right? yeah, King, yeah, Kingdom of Jerusalem. Yes, and, yeah, yeah. There was, uh, but there was, I mean, these were European, a European power in right in the heart of the Middle East for like 200 years, two centuries. I mean, we'll see if Israel makes it that long. I don't know if Israel is going to make it to 200 years. Um, Another interesting thing to the listeners might be, and this is just, again, one of these historical uh, tragic ironies that the land that so much Christian and Muslim blood was spilled over trying to get it from one side to another is now almost entirely owned and controlled by the Jews and all these beautiful crusader castles and all the areas, you know, the, the, the big famous ones and all the areas where the Teutonic Knights were are now possessed by Israel, which is something that the Jews are keenly aware of. And this is another reason why they try to always you know, our history is Marvel history. You know, that's uh, Spider-Man is what we teach our kids about because they're teaching their kids. By the way, that stretch of land that the Christians and Muslims fought over for like centuries, we control it now. Ha ha ha. You know, we Jews. Um, but they when the when the Europeans were driven out of the of the Middle East and of the Crusader states, uh, when the Teutonic Knights left. They at first they were basically shopping around for a place to go where they could continue to fight non Christians and have a purpose for existing. Right. And the first place they were invited in was Hungary. They were invited there by Hungary's King Andrew the Second, I believe, 
who invited them in to f- help fight against the Cumans, who were a barbarian tribe there that were raiding in Transylvania and horse archer people. Yes, horse archer people. Like the Hungarians had been the original like horse archer terror people, and then they kind of when Otto the Great kicked their ass <laughs> and like at, they, uh, about a, at Lechfeld and yeah, because the Hungarians had been literally ravaging all up and down Europe. I mean, the Hungarians were ravaging. Yeah, it's like the, the whole the first fifty. I just found this out a few months ago. Like the first fifty years of the nine hundreds were just hungry Hungarians riding all over like France, and even into Spain, <laughs> yes. and Italy, and Germany, and just destroying everything. And then the German King Otto, and this is, I think, the last time that the Germans and Hungarians were not on the same side. <laughs> uh, but um, that's not true, of course, because of the Habsburg Wars. But um, but yeah, so King Otto uh, the Great, who is considered, isn't he considered like the first Holy Roman Emperor? It, by some people, yeah. yeah. It's either, either Charlemagne and 800 Again, this is or, one of these things about the German Otto history the first. that we don't know. Like, we know about Richard Lionhearted, and thanks to Shakespeare, we know about all these other kings, and we know about Queen Elizabeth, and there's... And you could say, well, you know, Germany wasn't a unified kingdom, but, I mean, the Holy Roman Empire was a thing. I mean, it was the entity that was Germany, basically, for the entire medieval period. And we just don't know, in our culture, we don't know about... A king like Otto the Great. But anyway, uh, Otto the Great beat the Hungarians and they settled down in the Hungarian plain and their king, King Stephen, you know, converted them to Christianity in the year 1000. And then uh, and then they were establishing a Western style Christian kingdom in Hungary. And, and I have books about that, too, like the medieval Hungarians. You expect them to be fighting with like scimitars and like be very Eastern. They weren't at all. Like they, they made a conscious decision to Westernize. So they fought with the same like cross pattern well, you know, sword we, we, and we the joke, same armor. You know, we all joke about uh, Hungarians being, you know, Asiatics because Hort and, and uh, you know, Huns. <laughs> That's not well, funny, Greg. Huns being Asiatics. But, <laughs> but what what this is conventional history like what people don't realize is that central asia didn't start to get didn't start to be overrun by yellow people uh they didn't turn into hapas until about a thousand years ago i mean the the movement of like turkic asiatic peoples or, or the creation of turkic half half european half asiatic peoples didn't happen until about a thousand years ago so most of that big plain that runs from you know mongolia to hungary uh through central asia and then southern russia and and then uh ukraine all the way to you know all the way to hungary basically is perfect horse archer country yes and was controlled by by the huns and uh the the allens and the avars and the the cumans the pechenegs like all these the mongols even were were focused on making that their base of operations for the invasion of the rest of europe uh in fact when they that you know the mongols pressed mainly into poland in the north Mm -hmm. but if you read about what they were doing it was basically a big encirclement they were driving through poland as a way of getting and then they were going to go down into hungary and they were going to use hungary as the hungarian basin as their base of operations for the conquest of all the rest of europe and then what happened was genghis khan died and so their thing broke up but my Um, my point my point was though that these horse archer peoples if you're thinking back before about a thousand no question they were white yes yes which is sort of strange to think about because we think of horse archer people like uh these these later like the mongols or something as being asiatics because they were 
but and this is not like some alternate history. I mean, I, I read this in a convent in a like completely conventional academic history book that basically up up until a thousand central pretty far into cent into the central asian uh plains country was still white right right yeah no they, they, i mean they, we know the, the tocharians for instance out in uh the the um what is that called the base out in central asia were were a you know indo-european group so again this is history that i don't know extremely well uh but I probably know it better than most of the people listening to the podcast. So I'll just give you. Oh, my, don't 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 insult uh, the listeners. I'll, I'll give I'll give if anyone. There's gonna be some listeners gonna spurg out. Some listeners could spurg out in comments. But essentially, my knowledge of it is that Otto the Great, Otto the Second, Holy Roman Emperor, who was born in 912 and died in 973, he is the one that beat the Hungarians and kind of knocked them out of Europe, where they stopped raiding Europe. And then King Stephen, who was the first great king of Hungary uh, who converted them to Christianity, um, his reign was from 1000 to like 1038. Um, and he was born, uh, where was he, like 975. So essentially, the two happened together. The German emperor beats them back, and they're no longer raiding. And then King Stephen converts them to Christianity. And they stop being this crazy barbarian people that's like raiding all of Europe. And they start to establish like a, a Western-style Christian kingdom in the middle of Hungary. And then they later are having trouble with other Eastern, like you say, horse archer peoples like the Cumans. And so uh, King Andrew, he was having trouble beating these people back and he invited the Teutonic Knights to come in and, hey, you know, you want, you want to fight some pagans? We got some pagans. We got a pagan warrior barbarian problem. These people are, are, are taking our land and, and attacking us relentlessly and we need some help beating them back and you want to fight pagans and so he king andrew basically cut a deal with the teutonic knights that they could establish uh their own castles and their own territory and they because you know the teutonic knights were looking for an area that they could have because all monastic orders didn't just exist through like the catholic church paying them a handout all all monastic orders and states and monasteries had their own peasants, their own farmers, their own everything to support them. In fact, I know when, uh, like, for instance, when the French Revolution happened, I think uh, they secularized, like, a th a f I don't know, a third or a fourth of France was owned directly by the church, was just land, farmland and everything else, towns, everything owned by the church. So the Teutonic Order was looking for land to have as a base of operations and they thought, okay, we'll do it in Transylvania. And in fact, uh, one of the big famous castles that they call Dracula's Castle, uh, it's not actually Dracula's Castle. It's one of the Teutonic Knights castles that they built in uh, in Transylvania. And it makes sense you'd want Transylvania because that's there's the Carpathian Mountains just sort of wrap right around it. And yeah. you, you set up some castles there to keep the the horse archer people on the eastern side of that. Yeah, the castle that they call Dracula's Castle... It's called Bran Castle, and it's now in Romania, and they call it uh, Dracula's Castle. But I believe, yeah, the history of this castle, it was built in 2000. In, 2000, in 1212, the Teutonic Order built the wooden castle of Dietrichstein as a fortified position in the Burzenland at the entrance of the mountain pass through which traders had traveled for more than a millennium. 
this castle was destroyed by the Mongols in 1242. And uh, then a stone castle was built by the Kronstadt Saxons, who were Germans that lived there. Uh, a lot of the Germans, and I think Jazz wants to do a whole thing about the Romanian yeah, Saxons. Well, but, we're going to do a thing on the, the Drang nach Osten. But they were there, a lot of them, because of the Teutonic Knights. Like The Teutonic Knights seeded these communities of Germans in the middle of Hungary and Transylvania, some of which existed up until 1945 no even longer some of them they they still existed into they might still exist in the siebenbergen area i think there's still some that are still still, there there's still some german like not whole communities but like people there but yeah they still exist into the chichescu time have you seen uh brand castle like a picture of it Uh, it i don't think so you can bring it up while we're talking it's a really cool castle but they call it dracula's castle but it was it was originally built by the teutonic knights and then it was built you know ripped down and rebuilt and uh and it was there for the protection specifically uh, or exclusively for the fortification and protection of german colonists in transylvania and then later i think vlad the impaler uh he does not have a significant role in the history of the fortress, although he passed several times through the Bran Gorge. Mm-hmm. So they call it Dracula's Castle, but Vlad the Impaler had like nothing to do with it, you know. Um, and of course, he. Well, just so, it's so picturesque. It's yes, it just like looks like what you would picture as as Dracula's Castle, um, and that's the castle that's there today. Wasn't the original one built by the Teutonic Knights? But it, again, it's just it shows this interesting history where like, you know. Uh, we want to fight some pagans. Anybody need some pagans to be fought for them? I mean, how much cooler can we get? So first we have, like, the paladins of medieval age, the, the Templars, warrior monks, and then we combine that with, like, the SS, so Germanic, Teutonic warrior monks, and now they're, like, in Dracula's home territory. <laughs> and again, there's so much of this history, Greg, that you could just... Well, you see why this was a rom- uh, such an inspiration for you know, the romantic uh, nationalist yes. movement. Yeah. I mean, again, it just pisses me off that you have to dig up boring-ass books like that that one, The Northern Crusades. and I mean, the Osprey books are pretty good, but th- this could just be an endless source of, of, of comic books and films and cartoons and movies and toys. Like, all the stuff that we write in right now, you go to Walmart and it's just like row after row after row of Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Superman. Why not? this stuff you know why not have like stuff like this for the kids because it's just so cool um but anyway so yeah they were in hungary for a while and then they were they were headquartered at venice i think while they were while they were running their stuff in hungary briefly and yes and then they they moved uh then they finally moved started they got in on the action in the baltic well let me just say what happened in hungary is really funny they were so successful that Andrew, the Hungarian king, ended up kicking them out. Yeah, well, that's the thing about they, security. When you run security, or it's like being a lawyer, you know, you don't want to win. You don't want to win too easily. Yes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you need to get you need to get paid. Yes, uh, it basically um, King Andrew uh, told the Teutonic Knights, "Hey, you can you can keep whatever you win away from the Cumans." It's like, hey. And the Teutonic Knights were so successful at beating the Cumans back. I mean, just typical Germans, you know? <laughs> like, they go in, they immediately start building forts and, and, and driving back the well, it's amazing to me that barbarians. if they were, because if they're they heavy cavalry, how are they beating these Cumans? I mean, were they just stopping them up in the passes? I think, 
I don't know for a fact, but I think it a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were very good castle builders. And again, this is very German. Like building building stuff is something that the Germans are really good at, like building stone fortifications and everything. It and makes I, sense if you could just choke choke off all the, the the access points into the Hungarian plain from the Carpathian Mountains. That would be how you would prevent horse archer people from causing a problem because once they're in the plane they're like unstoppable they can go wherever they want to they're gonna be faster than you well and don't forget that their their original opponents were arab yeah, muslims arabs, you yeah. know who, who were like the best horse archers in the world you know so uh they they had a lot of experience with this and this was the thing that um you know we can talk about the main weapons of war at the disposal of the teutonic order but they're basically known for three things they are known for their heavy cavalry which were like the as good as anything in Europe. And as, as I said, I, I was actually trying to find the quote from Clausewitz earlier where he's talking about the importance, the relative importance of cavalry to artillery to infantry. And he says that in on war, Clausewitz says that it's not that medieval armies had much more cavalry than we used in the Napoleonic Wars. He said it's just they were much more important. So artillery was much more powerful in Napoleon's time and infantry rifles were much more powerful. In the medieval age, cavalry was still like a quarter of the army or something or, or you know, a third of the army. Whatever you third. could get, right? Yeah. But but cavalry was like the battle-winning thing in, during this whole period, heavy cavalry. So cavalry was their main thing. And the cavalry was made up not just of knights. There was actually only ever a very small number of true knights, like two brother knights. And there were all sorts of special conditions to be a brother knight, a full-fledged brother knight. A lot of them were what they called half-brothers, uh, which were, you know, they didn't take the full monastic vows, but they were, they would take it for like a certain period of time, and mm -hmm. then they would have... Uh, what do they call them? Like men at arms who were basically men sworn to the order, but they weren't full brothers, but they they had men at arm cavalry that were just fully equipped heavy cavalry, just like the knights. They just weren't fully accredited, you know, official brother knights. Uh, I think at their big giant Armageddon battle, their big Gotterdammerung Tannenberg, uh, Grunwald in 1410, there were only like 250 actual brother knights. And I think all of them, but like, 30 were killed on the battlefield like almost all of them died in that one battle but that's we're skipping ahead what happened in hungary was though they were they were beating the coons well, you're saying you're saying three types of knights oh, i'm sorry crossbows yeah and... knights crossbows crossbows were and and the reason crossbows the teutonic order became famous for their crossbows crossbows are very efficient very uh useful like any moron you can hand him a crossbow and he can point it and shoot like you don't have, it doesn't take the skill that being a really good archer with a longbow uh does um but the crossbow was such a deadly weapon it's sort of like chemical warfare in the 20th century the pope prohibited the use of crossbows uh between christians so you can't use the crossbow against fellow christians Which i'm sure they did but well, it the was, funny thing is that the Teutonic Knights are like, oh, hey, to. technicality, these people aren't Christian, so we're, we're here to convert them and but save their souls, so I we can certainly use crossbows. I think it was them. in the Osprey, Osprey book I saw, it was, they had about 50% of their force usually was crossbowmen. And so, I don't know if it was that, I mean, but I'm, I'm, I, but, you know, it depended, but yeah. But I'm imagining the sort of fighting that would develop would be kind of similar to 18th century warfare if you've got heavy cavalry and then uh, just a lot of guys w who could shoot and not a lot of like you know, blunt force weapon you know, spearmen swordsmen 
Right. It's going to look kind of it's there's going to be a bit of a lot of fire and maneuver. It's going to look strangely modern. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um But yeah, the 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 third big thing was castles. Was they were better at building castles than a lot of their opponents, more barbarian peoples and everything else. And this is something that they used in in the uh, Crusader kingdoms and they used it in Hungary and then they used it in the Baltic states. Uh, because you can establish a castle out in the middle of an area that's swarming with barbarians and they can't take it. They can't knock it out without a major siege. And what the Teutonic Order was very good at doing... And so if they, if they press beyond the castle, then you can send forces out from the castle to cut their supplies or to harass yeah. them from behind? Or Well, what the Teutonic Order was very good at doing, and this is, again, kind of a... Um, it's sort of like Napoleon's core, army corps system, is they were very good at positioning their castles one day away from each other. So one day's march. So if one, you know, the barbarians appear out of the pine forest and lay siege to the one castle, now all the surrounding castles can send their garrisons to relieve that castle so they can, you know, concentrate their, their troops where they need to. Well, and anytime you you march, you can stay at a castle. Yes. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have to be setting up a bivouac or something. Right, you... exactly, exactly. So, uh, But those were the three big things of the Teutonic Knights, really till the end of their uh, rule, was not... Yeah, again, what what like the British are famous for their longbowmen uh, with the Teutonic Order, it was crossbows. Crossbows were their big weapon, uh, heavy cavalry, and then castles. But yeah, so eventually, uh, Andrew of Hungary, after a very short period of time, kicks them out. Like 20 years. Yeah, it wasn't that long yeah. uh, because they were just so effective. And then at that time, they got invited. Uh, I forget whether it was the King of Poland. I think it was, it was the, King the King of Poland. It was the Grand Duke of poland i think yes, yeah invited, invited them. them up to fight the pagan lithuanians the and old uh, the prussians actually yes uh which do you know anything about the yes, old prussian yes. language oh uh, yeah uh so the the baltic peoples are different from the slavs they speak a lang they speak languages that are related uh and they linguists think that there was a period of common development between baltic and slavic languages before they split and then you had like a proto-slavic language and a proto-baltic language the old prussians are it's the word that we use to talk about the people who lived in prussia before they were germanized and so these were baltic speaking peoples spoke a language related to modern lithuanian in some ways old prussian is more archaic than modern lithuanian which is interesting because lithuanian is the most archaic indo-european language spoken really yes so lithuanian is not a slavic language no Wow. It's it's distant. It's related. I mean, you can if you study Slavic and you study Lithuanian, you you notice start to notice a lot of similarities. Right. Um. I don't know. Just like negative. If you ha use a negative verb, the object is in the genitive case. Stuff like that. I mean, it's like really in German or in English. You know, we'd say uh, I don't know him, but they would in Slavic you'd say I don't know his. Okay. If you're using a negation, the same thing is true in Lithuanian and the Baltic languages. So there's so, there's certain like typological or, or uh, syntactical similarities like that, and the sound, uh, the like uh, a lot of the the words are just similar. So uh, in in Russian, it's you know yaznayu, I know znayu. In Lithuanian, it's jeno. You can sort of hear that it's somewhat close. But, is that where we get our modern "you know" from? Like, no, no. This is the the the, the relationship of "znayu" I know to English "no" 
Know, K-N-O-W, is that in Indo-European languages, like the Slavic languages, a Z correspond or sorry, yes, a, a Z corresponds to a G in Latin or Greek. So we get cognosco in Latin, cognosco, G-N-O. You see that in, in like, to, uh, you know, cognizant or something in English. Oh, right, right, it's from right. this Latin verb, cognosco. Call just, it's a prefix, but gno, G-N-O, gno. And then you then a G in Latin is going to be a K in English. So G-N-O in Latin, cognosco. English, kno. Or German, canon. In German, it's wissen right it is but that's that's a different root that's like english wisdom or wit oh okay, um, or okay. latin uh okay. it's it that's that's connected with latin uh video i see okay and slavonic also uh vidit is to see okay so that's where wissen or, or wit comes from is is the to see verb right but anyway um you know, old Prussian is, is barely attested. It, it was only started to be written down in like the 1500s after the Reformation because when the, uh, the, uh, they started to write catechisms and stuff like that in, in old Prussian because there were still pe- people as late as the 1500s speaking old Prussian. Right. And it probably survived up until the 1700s or so and when it finally died out. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of old Prussian attested, but it is... In, it is similar to Lithuanian and in certain ways more archaic than Lithuanian. Like Old Prussian preserves the neuter gender, whereas Lithuanian doesn't have that anymore. Wow. But uh, Lithuanian and Sanskrit are like two of the main, the two main languages for like, how do you get closest to Old Indo-European? Wow. Uh, and along with like Homeric Greek and you, and then things like Gothic or you know, Old Latin or Tocharian. But Lithuanian is, is by most linguists uh, standard, the most archaic Indo-European language. It's really interesting. I spent, I went to Lithuania like 14 years ago uh, to do an internship there, Yeah, which sucked, but <laughs> it was the U.S. government. It was awful. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and it's, just, it's I, I studied the language. I, I made it through like a big, uh, there's a big uh, Lithuanian language textbook called uh, by by a the main scholar of this, and I, I got through the whole damn book, and so I was actually fairly proficient in this. I could like talk it and yeah. and read it uh, a little bit, and it's but it's just it's fascinating this this language because it's so archaic. But what the other thing, so talking about the these old Prussians and, and Lithuanians who are the main enemies of the, of the Teutonic Order. First, they the Teutonic Order came into contact with the with the old Prussians and slowly Christianized them. But the Lithuanians were uh, a big enemy of theirs for a long time. And because of like the fighting between the, the Teutons and the Lithuanians, the Lithuanians then developed into a more and more centralized state and went from being uh, different tribes that were fighting each other constantly to being a, a serious state and a serious contender against not only the, Prus- the uh, Teutonic Knights, but against the Poles and against the Russians. Right. Uh, I think in the case, if you compare the old Prussians to the Lithuanians, the, the old Prussians just got hit by the bulldozer and didn't have enough time to organize right. themselves. And they sort of became vassals and auxiliaries of, not vassals, but auxiliaries of the Teutonic Order. I know the Teutonic Order used to use a lot of like old Pru- uh, Prussian people, Prussian speaking people as their guides and their, their, their foot soldiers and probably 
um, crossbow men. Right. But uh, the Lithuanians. This this this. this fight, let me just interject. This fight, uh, by the way, was not as racialized as it became viewed in the 20th century uh, by both sides, really. Uh, like, and I, yeah, I don't would... even mean in 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 World War Two. You know, which we think of the Nazis and the anti-Slavic or the, the you know the the it really in the lead up to World War One is when this history I think was really more invoked actually than in the lead up to world war ii because my general sense is that conservative nationalists in germany would more want to borrow from the legacy of the teutonic knights mm -hmm. directly than i like what i'm thinking of greg is that there was a poster an election poster of the german nationalist oh, yeah, party that, hindenburg's well, party well there's save, one where save the east yeah where it shows a teutonic knight being chained up and he's being attacked by like Slavic and communists and whatever. It's just like, and and the idea being that the Nazis would not so readily directly invoke this like conservative Christian nationalist tradition. Mm -hmm. they, they're more doing their own thing. And the same thing with Stalin. Stalin's Russia. Uh, they also, of course, and we'll talk about that. They would use the Teutonic Knights as like a stand-in for the Nazis in 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 war propaganda, but. But we medieval we, Russia, like or, or yeah, well, we we should talk about the legacy of the Teutonic Knights, and it's good to put out the the caveat that like we are going to talk about. Well, the reason how, I mentioned how, it, yes, the reason I mentioned it is just the racial thing. Is that is that this wasn't really a racial war of Germans against Slavs. It there was an a, a, a in because well, of the Poles invited them in. Yeah, and 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 they incorporated a lot of the people that they had in their state were were not. German, like they were not ethnically German, from what I from yeah, what I've read right. about it, and you know, like the old Prussians, for instance, and so uh, so that's important again to put yourself in the mind of the medieval man in the same way that on one level the cruce, the first crusade was a racial struggle between Turks who had just converted to Islam and Vikings who had just converted to Christianity, but it wasn't just like. We're, this is a race war, and, know, we're, I, and I, we're using Christian and we're using religion as I. I think it was kind of a race war, though. I mean, it, well, it was like, and it like wasn't. One, one can go like, too far with the comparison, but yeah, because nowadays the fashion is to say like, well, you know, nothing's a race war, and uh, the, the the you just don't understand. It wasn't like that back then. It's like eh, it kind of was. I mean, they had the, you had these justifications of religion and, and holy war, and it was all wrapped and, up together. Is my point? Yeah. It was all tied up together, and it wasn't it wasn't like clearly like the, the where the one ends and the other begins. So it wasn't like. You know, the, 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 the race and religion were tied up together in, in that era very strongly and, 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 race, and race and tribe yeah. and, and, and ethnicity and language. But the, uh, the, so the thing about the Balts, both the Prussians and the Lithuanians, is that they were very not only archaic in their language, but archaic in their religion. Yes. They were I was still, getting ready to point were, this They out. were still pagan. They were and, like the last pagan people in Europe. Yeah, they only converted in the... I think the 1380s, Lithuania, finally, 1380 something, they officially converted. And it's funny because they had a, they they did convert, their King Mindaugas converted in the 1280s to Christianity. But then he apostatized and, <laughs> and was like, ah, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm still pagan. <laughs> and this like infuriated the Teutonic Knights. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my but God. But the, the Lithuanian paganism is, is uh, it's, 
it's similar to Slavic paganism. I mean, there's very little is known about it, but like little threads of it can be extracted from the folklore and from. There really was human sacrifice and some other uh, things. I know. I know. Based. Uh, yeah, there was some. There was some really. Uh, like they would sacrifice captured. Uh, I mean, again, this just is such a. Uh, I feel like this is just a. a, co- a, a, a uh, a justification or a, a propaganda story. Oh yeah, these Lithuanians are sacrificing our knights. Just it might be, but it, I, it I, sounds I, a bit like Canadians getting crucified on the Western Front. You know, it's like yeah, okay. At the same time, though, like again, but maybe I, you, I mean, you and I you were know. just talking about the Iroquois, and I got reading about the stuff with the Iroquois, and it really there is something to like barbarian peoples all over the world just doing really fucked up shit. I mean, just really being uh, awful. And, uh, you know, the Germans as well. I mean, like in the Druids and everybody, but, um, the, the, the Lithuanians, I mean, from what I've read, they were a very fearsome opponent. Like you wouldn't want to get captured by these people and, Mm -hmm. and they were, they were tough. They were very tough, uh, scary opponent. It's just, it's, it's funny because again, this, this whole conflict is just such, um, (laughs) <laughs> like a, a fertile ground for the imagination. Like when you can kind of picture the, how, what a dramatic conflict this would have been, you know? I mean, the, the idea of a medieval fight between two barons who were having a land dispute, so they marshal their peasants and the, you know... <laughs> the, 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 clobber the, each other at the, yeah, at the, the bridge. <laughs> and the peasants is like, you know, I think of Warcraft, dude, like, okay. You know, the peasant <laughs> is hoeing his spuds and living out his miserable existence, and then he has to go fight the other peasants, and then the rival cavalry on this side or that side they're like oh yes let me show off my armor and horses by charging into their peasants and i'm (laughs) like like, i'll do it i'm like oh wow that was you cleanly took off that peasant's head you know and then uh, and this is kind of like if you think of like rival german barons or rival english dukes or something or counts uh or french counts fighting it out it's not very exciting i mean it's just sort of like wow that's that would have been a shitty but look at look at where the exciting middle medieval wars are i mean there's there's uh like the the english versus the welsh and the scots right right yeah because uh, that was you know a, a culture war uh i won't say a race war but you it know was it was, it was, it was kind of kind of kind of acted like a race war, war. it looked like yeah, a race yeah, war yeah. and then uh the spaniards uh, the versus, versus the, yes, versus the, yes, the, the berbers yes. the moors and then the baltic crusades yes and the and the actual crusades and the actual, in, and the actual in, in, crusades, in the East. yeah. And, yeah but so. it's like the four corners of Christendom right. against these you know, barbarians. Yeah. Well, that's the stuff that really these, leaves these its Scots, impression. These Scotsmen. Yeah. And that, these, <laughs> these Muslims. <laughs> this is the stuff that is really uh, just excites the imagination. But yeah, they, the, uh, the 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 one thing I wanted to say before we leave um, Hungary, I just wanted to clarify uh, that little period because it's, it's again this is one of these fascinating histories um again i i pulled this up from the section of Burzenland on uh on wikipedia and Burzenland was so there were transylvanian saxons that were not that predated the teutonic knights but there was a particular area here that was uh founded by the teutonic knights it was in two in in i keep wanting to say 2000 for some reason in 1211 the region Burzenland was given to the Teutonic Knights by King Andrew II of Hungary in return for guarding the southeastern, south, southeastern border of the Kingdom of Hungary against the Cumans, 
while the king retained his right to mint currency and claims on gold or silver deposits that would be uncovered, he granted the Teutonic Order the right to establish markets and administer justice. The Crusaders were also free from taxes and tolls, so it's pretty favorable terms. The Teutonic Knights began building wood and earth forts in the area, and they had constructed five castles, Marienburg, Schwarzenberg, Rosenau, Kreuzberg, and Kronstadt, some of which were made of stone. The military order was successful in reducing the threat of the nomadic Cumans. Medieval Saxons from the Holy Roman Empire, and for anybody who doesn't know, Saxons were like medieval, that's the, that's the term for medieval Germans in that area. Uh, the Saxons from the Holy Roman Empire developed farms and villages nearby to support the forts and settle the land. Uh, and then... Bountiful agricultural yields led to further colonization by German immigrants. The Teutonic Knights disregarded the rights of the lo local bishopric, however, and bishop bishopric bishopric. Thank you, and angered Hungarian nobility, which already had settlers in the region. Led by Bela, heir of the throne, the nobility pressed the need to expel the knights upon King Andrew the second after his return from the fifth crusade grandmaster Hermann von Salza, and he's the main grandmaster of the Teutonic Knights, the one who eventually established the real the, the fourth grandmaster but the really the founder of them as yeah a, the one that made real... established them as an international like power you know um he a quick quick bishop rick yeah the rick r-i-c on the end yeah that's the that's left over from old english and it's the old english word related to reich oh really so the bishop rick is the reich of the bishop perfect oh thank you you learn something new every day uh so Grandmaster Hermann von Salza attempted to loosen the order's ties to the Hungarian crown by drawing closer to the papacy. So they weren't directly tied to the papacy, but they had like, it was this weird thing where the Teutonic order basically had two masters. They had the German Holy Roman Emperor and they had the Pope and neither one were they completely like subservient to. Um, Andrew subsequently evicted the order with his army in 1225, although Pope Honorius III protested to no effect. The confusing status of the Teutonic Knights within the Kingdom of Hungary led Hermann von Salza to insist upon autonomy before committing the military order to Prussia. So that's an important mm -hmm. point. So it was like the Hungarians gave them, so you get some tax benefits, you get this, you get that, but we get to keep this, we get to keep that. So when the Poles are inviting him into Prussia, he's like, okay, well, but here are the terms. We got to have complete autonomy. We have to have our own territory. What we conquer is ours without any uh, without any conditions. And uh, anyway, that so that's that's that little epic, that little period in in Hungary. But it's fascinating because again, the people in Burzenland were there. Uh, into the 20th century and i think a lot of them were kicked out uh after uh 1945 yeah but, but so anyway so yeah let's go back to uh prussia did you want to say anything more about those early uh prussian peoples no i think that's the main main point okay they were so they were forced forced peoples tribes uh sort of typical you know typical barbarians spoke a very archaic version of a new european uh and and they traded in amber, and they're known since ancient times for being uh, the source of amber, because that's where you get all this. That's where oh, you get wow. ambers, you get it on the Baltic. In fact, one of the, the Teutonic Knights' castles was called, or they had a, uh, this is in the, the Osri book, they had a, a 
an officer of the Teutonic Order called the Amber Master. Oh, wow. Because he okay. sat in the, one of these castles along the Baltic coast and just oversaw the collection of amber and the export of amber. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. And, and Hermann von Salza, uh, his to just tell his life story briefly and again i'm pulling this mostly from wikipedia i have it in my books here but this is this is a wonderful little summary um herman von salza yeah was this as you said the fourth grandmaster of the teutonic knights and he served from 1210 to 1239 and this was the key period where they reoriented from where they like i said they're shopping around for a new place to settle after they're kicked out of um the 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 holy land and they end up in Prussia. And this all happens under Hermann von Salza. Again, I like the fact that they had grandmasters. That's just a cool thing in and of itself. They, mm -hmm. they, they, you know, you can read about the hierarchy of the order, but they would have like a, a treasurer. They would have a, a, um, a grand marshal who was just in charge of the military stuff. And then they would have a grandmaster. So this is not... And, and he's elected by the brother knights. So this isn't like a typical... And it, uh, he had like four or five main guys under him which is yes you know conforms to modern theories about how you know how you have to organize a big organization you know, yeah he didn't have like 10 guys reporting directly to him he had that that number five and it's very uh it's interesting greg because again this is from a time where uh the dominant form of government in europe is families family dynasties and you know hitler talked about how um Several times he mentioned this, and I've read this in a couple of memoirs, how he thought the number one function, and I talked about this on the show, how he thought the number one function on a practical level of the celibacy within the church, the positive aspect of that was that it forced the church and the church institutions to always go back to the people, mm -hmm. to draw from fresh blood. Right. And you see this... <clears throat> You know, it's no coincidence that the Catholic Church is the like the only medieval institution that still is exists today, you know, is all over the world. Part of it is the adaptability created from that, that it's not tied to a specific dynasty, that it's there's a merit meritocratic element where you can, you know, a, a peasant's son can become a high bishop if he if he goes through the, the ranks and, and the education and all the rest of it. So, uh, again, you see the medieval church as a preserve of education and learning and meritocracy and a lot of things that we don't, in post-enlightenment, we don't think of the church that way. We think of the church in, in the opposite, like the medieval, medieval Christianity is like, that's that's superstition and ignorance that's that's burning scientists at the stake and that's holding back mankind and the progress of mankind with all kinds of nonsense myths about demons and angels and all the rest of it that that kind of enlightenment uh disparagement of the medieval church and the medieval church mindset is pretty is like ahistorical i mean it's the other way around it's it's the medieval church is where as you said where do we have the record of these old languages? I mean, and, and it's because of Martin Luther that we have the German language sort of became codified. So even the records of like, even the development well, it's, of it's, it's Martin, Yeah, it's Martin Luther because the Catholic Church, up until the Reformation, they were writing everything in Latin. Right. And even the even the order's records were kept mostly in Latin right. and not, not in German. Yeah. Uh, they were speaking German, but they were writing in, in Latin. <laughs> in Latin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, thanks to the Reformation, we have, uh, you know, records of all these 
strange and barbarous tongues. And that's why I, I say that uh, I've said this before that you can only if you're the most anti-Christian nationalist, you think uh, you know, oh, that's uh, a Jew on a stick, and uh, it's it's this terrible uh, thing that made a pacifist religion that made you know that created egalitarianism and equality. But basically, if you're Nietzsche, <laughs> yeah, if you take the Nietzschean view of Christianity, um, you still cannot dispute that Germanic civilization, civilization, not Germanic life and tribes and peoples and blood but germanic civilization is inseparable from christianity well, put, uh, put yourself in the, put yourself in the year 500 or 800 and, and look look at across europe these people are fighting each other constantly over the pettiest shit what is the like religious myth that you want to, to give them to make them stop fighting to build and maybe not stop fighting totally not to make them pussies but to build bigger organizations right and to prevent needless fighting. Right. Well, you give them a little bit, oh, oh you know, hey, uh, Herman, you're, <laughs> you love fighting people, you love killing. Why don't you pray to God and, and have a little bit of mercy? Be, be a little bit of a nice person. Like, let's, right. let's cultivate that aspect of your character just a little bit right. to prevent you from being a total savage. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's like kind of the best of both worlds. I mean, I think Christianity stripped of European ism european blood germanicness and all that uh is really something that uh like it <laughs> can go in very bad directions and the 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 germanic like northern european peoples prior to christianity uh they just really didn't have their shit together i mean they they, they were really pretty uh, pretty low level of development low level of civilization so yeah again we we have to even if you are very uh, anti-Christian, you have to acknowledge the legacy that this phenomenon, for lack of a better word, uh, the role that it played in shaping Western Europe and Germanic society and civilization. Um, but to get back to Hermann von Salza quickly, because we can, we can, I know we're getting to the end of part one here. Uh, Hermann von Salza, if, if there's, there's like two or three, um, two or three grandmasters that if you want to learn about the Teutonic Knights, you should know about. One of them is Hermann von Salza. Another one is um, uh, Ulrich the... Uh, Ulrich von Jungingen. Ulrich yeah. von Jungingen. And who, his elder brother, Conrad. Yes. And then uh, Heinrich von Plauen was the big uh, heroic grandmaster who pulled their fat out of the fire after Tannenberg. And those are actually those are probably the three uh, or four that you should really know about. Um, but Hermann von Salza, it says uh, in Wikipedia, and this is true, that he was a skilled diplomat with ties to the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, and he oversaw the expansion of the military order into Prussia. Now, if someone were to say, like, well, wh wh Warren, why do I care about that? Like, how is this guy relevant to the modern world? Well, I'll just draw the line of. Um, there's a direct line to where we are today with everything. And this dude, uh, basically... Von, Jung von Jungingen? Uh, no. Um, oh, oh, Herman Plowen. von Salza. Okay. Herman von okay. Salza. I'm going to try to sum this up as fast as I can. The Teutonic Order state, during the Reformation, secularized. And the last grandmaster converted to Protestantism at the urging of Martin Luther himself. Uh, 
So Martin Luther personally got this guy to convert to Protestantism, and he turned the Ordenstadt that had existed for two, three hundred years, turned it into the Duchy of Prussia. Yeah. And he became a Duke of Prussia. Later, that same political entity became the, what was it, the kingdom in Prussia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that became the kingdom of Prussia, which became the core of the German state, the German empire, Germany, the first or the second Reich. And then that became uh, the third Reich. And then the, you know, the third Reich was turned into, was split up into um, East and West Germany and then became reunified. So essentially, you know, the, the, the title of this podcast is Prussian Socialism. The entire history of the Prussian state can be traced back to the Teutonic Knights Ordenstadt and can be traced back to Hermann von Salza's decision to carry the, the, the activities of the Teutonic Order up into uh, East Prussia, what became East Prussia. And this is, again, just to bring it back around to the listeners, Hitler spent most of World War II, or about half of World War II, he spent it in East Prussia. He set up the, the wolf's lair in the, in the forest, the same dark forest that the Teutonic Knights were operating in, you know, 500, 600 years before. Hitler set up his own kind of castle, these giant bunkers, uh, these stone bunkers that still exist. They're all in ruins and they're covered in moss and everything, but they're still there. They weren't destroyed after the war. He spent most of the war directing the war effort from this outpost in East Prussia, which is very symbolic because it's like if you look at the entire European theater of World War II from like Stalingrad all the way over to, uh, you know, Spain, Prussia, East Prussia is like right in the dead center of the entire operation. And it's also the easternmost point of ancient German you know advance into the east so it's sort of like hitler's he's not his headquarters isn't all the way out in the new territories but it's not all the way back in the middle of germany either hitler's headquarters is right standing like an eagle's perch standing right at the edge of germany overlooking the east uh, again this legacy all goes back to hermann von salz's decision to move the order to prussia and the world we are living in today would not be the same if it wasn't for this guy's decision. And yeah, basically what the story is, uh, he was a friend and a counselor of the Hohenstaufen Emperor Frederick II, the guy we were talking about who got Jerusalem back. Uh, and he, the Pope also recognized his capabilities and granted the Teutonic Knights an equal status with the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights Templars after it had gone into decline under previous grandmasters. So the other legacy of Hermann von Salza is... This is when the Teutonic Knights become the third big military religious order after the Templars, and the Templars were the first, and then the Hospitallers, and then the Teutonic Knights. The Teutonic Knights were never as big or as powerful as either the Templars or the Hospitallers, but in a way you could argue that their legacy is greater. Their historical yeah, legacy they, is much greater. Um, I mean, what were the Templars and the Hospitallers doing fr from the... The early 1200s to you know the early 1400s. I know that the hospital not, not much. I mean, they're hanging out in like Cyprus and then later Malta. And yeah, yeah, and then the uh, and the Templars, you know, of course, had their own troubles within France. <laughs> and the Templars had a very tragic end uh, when basically uh, the one French king who was it um, was it the one who fought Boniface the Third. Anyway, he decided like you know I want all the shit that the Templars have. 
and he basically organized a thing to convict them all of heresy and have all their leaders burned at the stake and then seized everything that they had. It's a very tragic end to the Templars, especially after they... You know what they said about the Templars? And this is a kind of... This is an old military idea um, that they talk about the U.S. Marines, the Marine Corps, and everything. But the Templars, the legend of the Templars was that they were the first into every battle and the last to retreat. Mm. And again... The Templars, the Hospitallers, and the Teutonic Knights, in that sense, are similar to the SS, but also Napoleon's Imperial Guard and any of the really elite formations of history where their military reputation is that exact thing, the first into the battle and the last retreat. If you've got these guys in your army, they are like the hard asses of the hard asses. Yeah, well, what's amazing about all those groups you just mentioned or it was, is that they were not peoples. They were institutions. Yes. That drew on people. Yes. But the, this institution of the Teutonic Knights lasted for two or 300 years as a, as, a, as a power. As a major power, yeah. And it wasn't as if they had their own. They were siring sons and having peasants that they could uh, draw up into the ranks. Everybody that they were recruiting, they were recruiting from Germany for the most part, right? Uh, from political entities other than their own, right? Right. Yeah, and it's it's sort of pan-European, really. All these institutions. I mean, even though the the like the, Napoleon's Imperial Guard were French. But they weren't only French. You could get into the guard if you weren't French. And the SS, the Waffen SS, which is like so associated with it was, Germanness. It was pan-European. I mean, it was, it was pan-world, you know? It was, <laughs> yeah. So so Hermann von Salza, you know, again, he's the one that led the placing of the Teutonic Knights in the Burzenland in Transylvania to defend against the Cumans. And then when they were forced to leave in 1225, he accompanied Frederick on the Fifth Crusade in 1219 and was decorated for bravery from by John of Brienne, Herman later convinced Frederick to undertake the Sixth Crusade and was partially responsible for Frederick's marriage to Yolanda, daughter of Brienne's, or John of Brienne's daughter. Yo, Yolanda, Yolanda, he ain't gonna do a goddamn thing. No, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, I just, I don't see the word, the name Yolanda very often. Anyway, upon his return to Europe, Herman helped to end the War of the Keys and lift Frederick's excommunication. He was then requested by Conrad I of Masovia to fight the pagan old Prussians mm -hmm. after Herman had gained approval from both the Pope and the Emperor. So this is key too. He gets the Pope to sign off on it and the emperor of Germany. So you have the secular German authority and the multinational religious authority of Europe. Both agree, we're going to help you back this. We're going to support this. And what, what year is that? 12? <clears throat> they began their lengthy campaign to Christianize Prussia in 1230. Okay, so that, w that, was, that would have been Frederick II then. Yeah. yeah. And it says that Hermann's subsequent visits with the Pope or the Emperor brought new privileges and donations to the order. In other words, he was a very he was a great warrior and a great but he was also a great diplomat. He was very good at developing these personal like they call that what do they call it? Personal diplomacy, like what Trump was engaged mm -hmm. in. He was very good. He had a, a close relationship with the Pope and the German Emperor. He must have been a very charismatic man to lead this order and be this the great warrior and he's got the respect of popes and kings. I mean, he must have been a very impressive figure. I mean, Medieval Hermann Goering. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Only, uh, uh, I think Hermann Goering was a little more on the material indulgences than this guy was. <laughs> uh, 
But it says that he was able to obtain the incorporation of the Livonian Brothers of the Sword, and we'll talk about that in the second part. Right, yeah, I, I, the sword there's, there's, that's all, there's a whole theme there that we can talk about. But he did all this, and uh, it says the importance of his me- role as mediator between the Pope Gregory and the Emperor can be seen by the fact that all communication between Frederick and the Pope broke off with Herman's death. So as we know, uh, any scholar of European history knows there's always issues between the German emperors and the Italian popes. And uh, apparently this guy was very good at keeping the two bound up together. And um, within the Teutonic Order, though, this is oh, kind is, of funny. Is, this is Pope Gregory the Ninth, right? Uh, uh, yes. Nice. He's the, the bassist Pope Gregory. He was the one who investigated the Jews and had a bunch of Talmuds. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Oh, man. See, this is just great history. Like, anywhere you look, like, literally any part of this history that we just touch... There's awesomeness, you know, it's like great stuff. And again, that's why nobody knows about it. It's deliberate that no one knows this stuff. Um, it's funny though, because a lot of time, a lot of these grandmasters were not very well appreciated. Uh, Heinrich von Plauen's another one, the mm-hmm. other big great one. But this guy was like probably their greatest grandmaster within the Teutonic Order. However, the knights began to grow dissatisfied at the absence of their grandmaster, so they recalled him and had him withdrawn from polit- his political life. He was a less he was a less successful as a religious leader and soon retired to Salerno in 1238. He died there in 1239, and it says that a uh, uh, this is important to just think about his role in German history. A marble bust of Hermann stood as a secondary figure at the side of the Brandenburg Margrave Albrecht II in the former Berlin Siegessaal. Siegessaal. It has Victory Hall. Sigas Hall. Yeah, it has been in the Spandau Citadel since May 2009, and uh, of course he was memorialized. There's a huge statue of him in Marienburg, which was the seat of the Teutonic, the headquarters of the Teutonic Knights in Prussia. And during the Second World War, Panzer Division SS Panzer Abteilung 11 was nicknamed, or was named rather, not nicknamed, was named Hermann von Salza. So uh, you know, this is a great German hero a great figure in german history a great figure in catholic history and also a pivotal figure in world history because this guy directly helped to establish this idea of prussia which became germany thank you warren for coming on and heil hitler heil hitler greg